0: We're going to be looking at Psalm 2 this evening. I apologise, by the way, for the handout. I I printed 140 of them before I realised that I had last week's date at the bottom right-hand corner. And I am a perfectionist, but there are limits. (sighs) Uh, So I hope you can endure the temporal dislocation that you will no doubt feel if you're like me, as you look down at that and think, ah, time warp. Uh, in case you hadn't realised, my plan in, in these little mini Bible study sessions is to is to work through the Psalms. I don't know whether we'll do all of them. We might just do my favourite ones, but so far it's two for two because we're on Psalm 2 this week, and because um, I like Psalm 1 and like Psalm 2 a lot, so uh, and we'll see where we get to. Um, I'm going to lead us in prayer, then I'm going to read the Psalm, which is on the handout in front of you. Uh, it's, it's a slightly different translation from what you, any of you will have in your Bibles, because I wanted to draw out a few things that are there which are not... Uh, and also visible in most contemporary uh, mainstream translations, but uh, nothing, nothing huge. Yeah. And um, I hope this will be edifying and encouraging to us. So that as we're singing, and in particular as we're singing the Psalms, we're doing so in a more informed way. I will sing with my spirit, I will sing with my heart, and my mind also. So um, let's pray, and then we'll jump in and have a look at this. Merciful Father, we're grateful to you for all your abundant kindness to us in our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that he is the ruler of the nations. And as we come together for fellowship now and to have your word open before us, to be fed on the words that proceed from your mouth, and as we later sing, we pray that you unite us in that conviction that we serve a conquering and mighty king. We don't need to fear the nations around us. We don't even need to fear the rulers of the one we're in, because your son, our Lord Jesus Christ, sits enthroned in Zion. And we pray that you'd open our eyes afresh to the wonder of that truth as we're reflecting on this part of your word this evening. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. On Thursday, 21st of December 2006, the BBC published an article entitled, Turkmenistan's Iron Ruler Dies. Quote, <coughs> Turkmenistan's authoritarian president, Saparmurat Niyazov, who ruled the Central Asian country for 21 years, has died aged 66, state TV has reported. The BBC reported uh, what he died of. He disclosed the previous month that he had heart trouble and he died of a heart attack, the BBC said. The BBC also disclosed something of his character. And in typical understated British English, they wrote... Mr. Niazov became Communist Party chief of what was then a Soviet republic in 1985 and was elected first president of independent Turkmenistan in 1991. In 1999, he was made president for life by the country's rubber-stamp parliament. That's the BBC's way of calling it a dictatorship. During his reign, Mr. Niazov established a cult of personality in which he was styled as Turkmenbashi, or leader of all Turkmens. He renamed months and days in the calendar after himself and his family and ordered statues of himself to be erected throughout the desert nation. Cities and an airport were given his name and a meteorite was named after him. Mr. Neershoff was intolerant of criticism. I love the BBC. <laughs> like, what it means is he used to you know, rip the fingernails out of people who you know, published articles critical of him and allowed no political opposition or free media in the nation of five million people. So the BBC told us uh, what he died of. They told us what he was like. But not even the BBC could tell us why he died. To know why why he died, you have to read a short article that was written by a friend of mine the following day. In it, he writes the following... Last night, along with presumably thousands of other Barnabas Fund supporters, Barnabas Fund is a Christian charity that particularly supports um, Christians in uh, persecuted, persecuting countries where Christians are persecuted. Our family followed the prayer diary, and the prayer diary read this. Pray that President Niasov will realise that the church cannot be squeezed out of existence and will cease his campaign against Christians. My friend then writes, without the first idea that he was ill, we prayed that he would die in some way or another. Die, that is, as an active enemy of the church, by conversion, by removal from power or by ceasing to breathe. As it turns out, he died an hour later. He has ceased his campaign against Christians and he now realises that the church cannot be squeezed out of existence. Psalm 2, verse 9, stands. End of quote. In other words, it took a Christian to explain the why. Of course, we can't see the causal relationship that exists between the rise and fall of nations and their rulers. We see by faith those things. There's a distinction between sight and faith. Sight refers to those things that we can discern the connections between cause and effect in. But we know by faith why President Niazov died, because the Bible tells us what happens to rulers who oppose Christ and his church. And there are few places where it says so with more fear-inspiring clarity than Psalm 2. I want to read it to you. Why do the nations conspire and the peoples murmur a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand and the great ones establish themselves together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Let us burst apart their bonds and cast away from us their cords. The one seated in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he speaks to them in his anger and in his wrath terrifies them. I have set my king on Zion, the hill of my holiness. I will recount the decree. The Lord said to me, my son you are. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will give the nations as your inheritance and as your possession the ends of the earth. You shall break them with a rod of iron and like a potter's vessel you shall shatter them. And now, kings, be wise, be warned, judges of the earth, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling, kiss the sun, lest he be angry and you perish in the path. For his anger burns quickly. Blessed are all who seek refuge in him. Psalm 2, roughly speaking, is broken into four parts. And we're going to look at those four parts in a moment. It goes along with Psalm 1 as an introduction to the book of Psalms. We can tell that it goes with Psalm 1 as an introduction in a number of ways. Um, firstly, both Psalms 1 and 2 don't have a superscription at the beginning, which is a bit odd. There are other Psalms that don't have a superscription, but in the first two or three books of the Psalms, all of those seem to be connected to the previous psalm. So Psalms 1 and 2 seem to stand apart. Um, they also, it seems that they probably circulated at some point as a single Psalm. In some manuscripts, they were understood this way, because there's a quote in... Um, Acts 13.33, that comes from Psalm 2, but in some ancient Greek manuscripts, it says that comes from the first psalm. Which is really weird. Unless, at some point, the first two psalms were joined together into one and became like the first psalm in a very early manuscript of the psalms, perhaps. But we also know that the first two psalms are a unity because of internal factors. And one in particular I want to highlight for you. Remember Psalm 1 begins... Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, and so on. And look how Psalm 2 ends. Look at the end of it. The very final line. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. And that little phrase, blessed are, blessed are, seems to mark out the beginning and the end of, beginning of Psalm 1, end of Psalm 2. It's called an inclusio. It's like a chiasm with nothing in the middle. It's like a chiasm with all the middle taken out. And it it tells you what all the intervening material is about. So you might say, Psalms 1 and 2 introduce the whole book of Psalms and teach the way to find blessing. The way to find blessing is, Psalm 1, to walk in the Torah of the Lord, the teaching of the Lord, the instruction of the Lord, and, and murmur and meditate on the Lord's Torah instruction day and night. And if you do that, what will happen is, Psalm 2, you'll end up revering the Son, kissing the Son, the anointed King of the people of God, meditating on the Torah, Psalm 1, will lead you to pay homage to and reverence the Son of God, which is what Psalm 2 is about. Psalm 2 is actually an enthronement psalm, probably composed for or by King David. It's, It's attributed to David in the Book of Acts, in one of the quotations where it's quoted from. And notice also, and this is going to be the focus for the next few minutes I want to share with you, That whereas Psalm 1 seems to have its focus on the individual man, the individual woman, placing before them two paths, the way of the righteous and the way of the wicked. And the way of the righteous is described in rich and glorious detail. You turn away from this and that and the other and you meditate on the law of the Lord, on his law. You contemplate, you meditate day and night. The way of the wicked, they're like like the chaff that the wind blows away. You've got this. And that's a decision you have to make and all of us have to make. But we know the Bible is not just about individual faith and life. It is also about the affairs of kings and rulers and nations. And so Psalm 2 focuses attention there. And the blessed are, at the end, zooms out. It's not blessed is the man who takes refuge in him, is it? It's blessed are all. So can you see that together they form this wonderful, complementary introductory, two-piece, musical, poetic, uh, preface to the whole of the book of Psalms. If we as men and women will walk in the Torah of the Lord, we will find blessing and happiness. We'll be led to reverence the Son. And our prayer must be that not only we, but our kings and our rulers do the same, so that all may find blessing in him. Psalm 2. You with me? Now, this is not new. Um, this is as old as the Bible. Uh, I want to quote from you for you from... Uh, England's finest theologian who's been dead for a few hundred years. That tells you something. John Owen, if you look at the handout here. um, John Owen, uh, I owe more to John Owen directly and indirectly than to most theologians, especially in matters of Christian eschatology and political theology. And at a certain point during his um, ministry, his career, he was um, a senior academic. and He was a vice-chancellor, I think, of Oxford University, or chancellor, I forget which, and um, at one glittering period in English political history, um, the assembled parliamentarians in London basically got on the blower on the phone to John up in Oxford, fifty miles away, to ask him to come down and explain how they should do their job. And so he went down to London and he preached a series of sermons over several several months, which have been collected together in this book. Um, this is about three um, percent of John Owen's literary output during his life. Um, It's entitled The Sermons to the Nation. It's in volume eight of his collected works. And he preached a sermon there entitled Christ's Kingdom and the Magistrate's Power, from which the following quotations come. And I want you to have this stuff in your mind as we jump into Psalm 2, because if there's one theme in scripture that John Owen understood, it's the themes of uh, political theology and of the necessity of our rulers bowing before the King Jesus that are uh, outlined in Psalm 2. This is John Owen speaking, quote, if once, remember who he's speaking to, he's speaking to the civil authorities, okay? If once it comes to that, that you shall say that you have nothing to do with religion, and he obviously means the Christian religion at this time, 17th century England, you will have nothing to do with religion as rulers of the nation, God will quickly manifest that he hath nothing to do with you as rulers of the nation, another section, he says, the gospel of Jesus Christ hath a right to be preached and propagated in every nation and to every creature under heaven. I love how he personalizes the gospel. The gospel is the declaration that Jesus is the Christ, the anointed King and the Lord, the ruler and judge of all the earth, to whom every knee must bow because every knee will bow. And therefore it entails the call to repentance for everybody. And That declaration, it's almost like it's a living word, you might say. It it has a right to be heard, because the words of God have a right to be heard in every nation. Wherever the gospel is by any nation, owned, received, embraced, it is the blessing, benefit, prosperity, and advantage of that nation, unquote. And actually, whatever we might think of the failings of this nation, or any other nation, uh... Certainly in the modern West, to different degrees, all of them have benefited from and have experienced the blessings of at least previous generations' commitment to Christ. There's a lot of good in America. And John Owen would say, and the scriptures would have us believe, that that is God's blessing. It's God's kindness. Because at various points in our history, we've had godly men and women in charge of stuff. And then finally, uh, with a, um, a glance towards uh, deceased former President Niazov, quote, the rejection of the gospel by any people or nation to whom it is tendered is always attended with the certain and inevitable destruction of that people or nation, which, sooner or later, shall, without any help or deliverance, Be brought upon them by the revenging hand of Christ. That's a very good summary of Psalm 2. Just let me highlight one observation that that final quote from John Owen calls attention to. It's brought upon them by the revenging hand of Christ in such a way that we might not be able to see the connections within history that bring it about. It's often said, isn't it, By uh, sometimes by cynical unbelievers, sometimes by inquiring unbelievers, who are generally inquisitive. If God is there, why doesn't he show himself? And There's a number of different ways you could answer that. You could say, well, he has shown himself in Christ, and he has revealed himself. But I'd also want to say... Well, he he does show himself today. He, he shows himself in the history of world events. And then he invites you to view the interpretation of those events in the scriptures. But he doesn't show himself in such a way that you don't need the scriptures in order to interpret the history. He shows himself in such a way that we do need the, the scriptures in order to interpret the history. If you just viewed the history of Turkmenistan in the later 20th and early 21st century, you'd say President Niyazov died of a heart attack. That's an incorrect reading of history. The correct reading of history, according to the Bible, is that his death was brought about, in John Owen's words, by the revenging hand of Christ, in response to the prayers of believers. We pray that he would die either by ceasing his opposition to the church or by being converted and joining the people of God or by ceasing to breathe. That is a perfectly legitimate and wise and biblical prayer to pray. And we're encouraged to do so by Psalm 2. I just want to talk us through it briefly. We do have a wonderful version of Psalm 2 in our Cantus Christi. Some of you know this. And I think, have we sung it a couple of times? I've certainly sung it somewhere. Yeah, it's it's here. I might... My memory for, for music is terrible. I, I kind of remember songs, and, but don't remember what they're called, what the words are, or where I've sung them. Um, but there's a great version of Psalm 2. Maybe we'll get to it at some point. Um, let me just walk through this with you. And, and I, I do want to spend a bit more time on verse 1 than the other verses. So if it gets to sort of 10 to 7 and we're still on verse 1, don't panic, okay? We're not going to be here until midnight, I promise. Why do the nations conspire and the peoples murmur a vain thing? Okay, question. What's... Unusual about that sentence. Just look at that sentence. Why do the nations conspire and the peoples murmur a vain thing? Anything unusual about it? Beg your pardon? murmur. Murmur? Yeah, well spotted. You've seen that before. Where have you seen that before? In Psalm 1. Very good. So there is that feature. So the conspiratorial murmurings of the nations of the world who, and we'll see in verses 2 and 3 in a second, are trying to conspire against God, whom they imagine to be an oppressive tyrant, are strikingly contrasted with the murmuring that the righteous does. He murmurs on the law of the Lord. You've got two ways to murmur. Murmur on the Torah of God or murmur against God. So yeah, that's one um, striking feature of that first verse. Um, You notice something else about it? Look at the punctuation at the end. Yeah, it's obvious now, right? It's a que- Mrs. Henry, thank you very much indeed. It's not just babes and children who, children who bring wisdom, it's sometimes the older saints. Um, it's a question which is fascinating because there is a whole genre of poetry called. Question poetry, I discover. and Maybe it's got another technical name, but the, the article I read called it question poetry. And it, it turns out that poems begin with questions for particular reasons. In general, to invite you to inhabit the emotional world of the poet who is asking the question. And this is just so appropriate i think given the reaction that we tend to have to what the first three verses of this psalm are talking about just look with me why do the nations conspire and the peoples murmur a vain thing then i've set off verses two and three indented slightly because they're kind of under this heading what are they murmuring while they're doing this the kings of the earth take their stand and the great ones establish themselves together against the lord And against his anointed one. The kings of the earth are united, at least in this, that they're against the Lord in David's day. And how many of them are against the Lord and against his anointed one now? And what they say is, in quotes, verse three, let us burst apart their bonds and cast away from us their cords. And it's just fascinating because just think of the the internal logic of these three verses. The nations of the world regard the law of god psalm 1 as restrictive fetters and chains on them cords that bind them and it's as though in all their politicking the kings of the earth are trying to figure out how to get rid of god how to how to take god out of the picture and it is through that lens that we ought to interpret the machinations of the nations. Now, that's not, to say, that's not to say that there's this kind of conspiracy going on. I'm not, to, not here to endorse the idea that there's some um, secret cabal that is self-consciously doing this. No, quite the contrary. I think, actually, if you talked to many misguided political leaders, you'd discover that, in their own way, they're quite well-intentioned, but their well-intentionedness is not informed by Torah, they're, they're trying to do. They're trying to help young people who seem in anguish, and some young people who are in anguish, who are girls, want to be boys, and they think, well, the way to help is to help them to become boys. Obviously, not. You see that there's there's this deeply twisted and misunderstood logic going on, and what the psalmist is telling us is what it amounts to, not self-consciously, but subconsciously is rebellion against the Lord and regarding the righteous Torah of God as chains and fetters. Wouldn't it be wonderful if we didn't have all these you know, Christians around to keep reminding us of like, biology and stuff? And, but back to the question thing. Don't you ever feel frustrated by that? That when I talk to people in this congregation and elsewhere, who have thought a bit about public theology and political theology, who are engaged, so to speak, in, in reading about contemporary political events. It's almost like there's a linear relationship between how much they've read and thought and how frustrated they are. Because it's really hard, right, to... I remember the first kind of... Dipping toe into public theology, you know, two and a half decades ago that I did, and I, I, within about a year, I could no longer listen to Radio Four on the BBC because it was just so infuriating. It just drove me nuts. I could, I literally, I, I realised I it was making me angry every morning. I said, Stop, "Not listen to it. Get my news from somewhere else." Why do the nations do this? Isn't it stupid? And the poem invites you to enter the world. Of frustration the, and, and to deal with it here's the key thing, to deal with it in the way that the poem does other question poems do this shall I compare thee to a summer's day oh. thou art more lovely and more temperate rough winds do, sh- you know the poem right but it doesn't say, you're a bit like a summer's day <laughs> doesn't it Because what it wants to do is to draw you into the emotional world within which Shakespeare Sonnet 18 is is writing. Is it Sonnet 18? Yeah, of course it is. Um, And to show you how to respond emotionally to that frustration. Because the danger is we respond to that frustration in a very worldly way. So how does the psalmist teach us to respond to the frustration of living in a world in which the The nations and their rulers conspire together, wrongly imagining that the Lord is there to make their lives miserable. The one seated in heaven laughs. Verse 4. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he speaks to them in his anger and in his wrath terrifies them. By the way, you notice all the little chiasms? I didn't plot them all out. Speaks to them, anger, wrath, terrifies. Little chiasm. And obviously anger and wrath match. And speak and terrifies match as well. Because one day it will be absolutely terrible for some people to hear the voice of God. It will be liquid gold, melted chocolate to those who've learned to love the word. But there will be a day when the voice of the Almighty sounds and it terrifies those who have wrongly imagined that his Torah, his voice, is there to restrict and harm them. So look, chiasm is everywhere. Right? I've set my king on Zion, the hill of my holiness. It is, this is the Lord's response to the impudent foolishness of the wicked kings of the earth. <coughs> Giggles. The one enthroned in front of heaven laughs scoffs at them. Then he speaks, and what he says is, uh, I've, I've installed my king on Zion. Like, hadn't, hadn't you noticed? And of course, like I said, this, king was, this poem was originally written by or for King David. Um, probably for, I think. Um, and verse 6 is speaking of King David. It's like, the nations of the world would be really foolish to oppose the lord because now we've got a king in in zion the hill on which jerusalem is built what are you going to do you take him on good luck as calvin wouldn't have said but of course it speaks more loudly and clearly of king jesus i've set my king on zion the hill of my holiness this psalm portions of this psalm are quoted numerous times in the new testament in relation to jesus and It's just ridiculous and tragic. And it's, in a sense, it's why the primary responsibility of the church is to proclaim and live the gospel, because it's by doing that that we manifest the kingship of Christ in the world. We show that there is a king in the heavenly Zion by submitting our lives to him. That's how we show that there's a king on Zion. We tell people, hey, Jesus is Lord. Jesus is the Christ. He's calling you to repent. And we show people. Every time you don't return violence with violence, you show that you're subject to the rule of a king on Zion who says, no, don't do that. Turn the other cheek. And so that is demonstrating the gospel, demonstrating the truth of what the Lord chuckles at. I've set my king on Zion. Stop Stop making this fuss, all you puny kings of the earth. Verse 7. And then what happens? The king says, I'm, I'm going to tell you what I heard. I will recount the decree. I'll, 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 let me just tell you all, all the nations of the world, what the Lord said to me. Quote. And it's very striking that the first two chunks, you've got a kind of scenario being depicted and then a quotation. Another scenario being depicted and then a quotation. <laughs> But then in verse 7, it's just like, in, enough of this hearing what you're doing and hearing what you're doing. I'm just going to tell you what God said. And so this, this chunk is, the, the, the quoted bit is much longer. My son, you are. That's the Hebrew word order. The first word that the Lord says to his anointed king is, my son, you are. My son. Today I have begotten you. ask of me and I will give the nations all those nations that is whose kings are trying to conspire against me and against you ask just ask, and I'll give you the nations as your inheritance and the ends of, and your possession sorry, and as your possession, the ends of the earth. Kaism again. you shall break them with a rod of iron like a potter's vessel, you shall shatter them. I don't know whether you've ever smashed a piece of pottery with a rod of iron. I've dropped bits of pottery on the floor. You've probably done that and spent the next 45 minutes sweeping up fragments of pottery glaze from the four corners of the house. You've done that? Because that's what is going to happen to the nations that refuse to acknowledge the Christ, the king. So, you've heard what God says. Now, now what's fascinating at this point is that King David, it's as his, as it were, is he... It's as though he beckons the kings over towards him and says, look, come here a second. Sit down. Let me, let me tell you what you ought to do. We're, we're not here to hurt you. We're here to help you. It's what Jesus does. Says, look, everybody. I, I, I know you're you know, city councillor or mayor or president or prime minister or something or that, but I know you're just a, like a feeble human being, just like everybody else. So come here. Let me tell you what you need to do. Kings, be wise. Be warned you great ones, judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. That's the first thing. Kiss the the son lest he be angry. The son is the king. You are my son. My son you are. And you perish in the path. Like the path of the first psalm. Yeah? You could either prosper in the path by walking in righteousness upon it or you could perish in the path by refusing to pay homage to the king to Jesus kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the path for his anger burns quickly blessed are all who seek refuge to him and there is still time for you to do so uh, I want to ask you to pray for me um, and Mr Lewis over there um, we're going to go and meet uh, in a couple of weeks time Our District 7 councillor, the lady, Macy Hill, who is the councillor for the area of Fort Worth in which our church is located. Um, I believe she professes faith as a Christian. Uh, I don't know her personally. I don't think Mr Lewis does either. We're hoping to have a great conversation with her. um, To encourage her about things that she's done which are good. And to urge her to kiss the sun. And serve the Lord with fear. Lest she perish in the way. Because whenever the gospel is by any nation owned, received, embraced, it is the blessing, benefit, prosperity, and advantage of that nation. Wouldn't that be wonderful? Final words from John Calvin. Um, When you find yourself in verse 1 again, overwhelmed, frustrated, irritated, disappointed, John Calvin in his commentary on this psalm writes, when we see Christ... Remember, this psalm is about Christ in the first instance. Well nigh overwhelmed with the number and strength of his enemies, let us remember that they are making war against God over whom they shall not prevail. And therefore their attempts, whatever they may be, and however increasing, will come to naught and be utterly ineffectual. So we can laugh with the Lord. We can rejoice with him. We can eat. We can celebrate the blessing that we've received as we have been. We've had our eyes opened to the kingship of the king. And we can earnestly pray that he would do the same for others. Shall we pray? Merciful God and Father, we thank you for this wonderful and uh, inspiring and sobering psalm. We do pray for our rulers, for our mayor, our state. Governor, our President, the Congress and other officials. We pray for Ms. Hill, our local council member. We ask that you would lead all of them to serve you with fear and pay homage to King Jesus. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Mr. Whittlesey or Pastor Shaw, do you want to step up here and give us some instructions concerning the next stage of the evening? Thank you.